Hello and welcome to episode 7 of History Remastered. We have a very exciting interview episode today. I'd like to welcome Dr John Reeks to the podcast. Hi Charlotte, it's lovely to be here. Thank you very much for the invitation. And today in our interview episode, we're going to be talking about Charles I. So that's the king who fought with Parliament, pushed Anglican religious policies, fought the armies of the English and Scottish parliaments in the English Civil War, and when he was captured and refused to accept the terms of constitutional monarchy, he was beheaded. And that's, of course, a very, very quick summary. But this is an area of your specialism, isn't it? Yes, it is, uh, which is just as well. Um, So, yes, I did my PhD on uh, parish religion, the post-Reformation, 17th century religion, which crosses over the reign of Charles I, the Civil Wars, period of Cromwell and the Restoration. And I've published several articles on aspects of that research, as well as a piece on uh, Bristol and the English Civil War but particularly fascinated by this character of Charles I and the politics of the 1630s, which I think perhaps not enough people know something about. And that's actually what we're going to be talking about today. So I'm going to be asking John some questions about this 17th century history. We're going to start with some more basic questions, like who was Charles I, and then move into some kind of bigger issues, like whether he was a tyrant or not. And the fact that you might not know much about this history takes me on to the second section of the episode where we're going to consider whether Charles has actually been forgotten in the public history realm and why that might be. So let's start off nice and simple. Who was Charles I? Charles I was born in Scotland in 1600, the second son of the then Scottish king James VI of the Stuart dynasty. James VI, of course, became James I of England in 1603 and travelled down into England to become king there until 1625. Charles I was James's second son, so never actually destined to be king. He was quite a sickly child. Uh, he suffered from rickets with a young age and only ever grew to be about five, uh, five foot four inches tall. So very slim, not physically very imposing, very short, always suffered with a lifelong stammer, perhaps also a lack of self-confidence. His elder brother, the Prince of Wales, Prince Henry, was tall, was gallant, handsome, Protestant, was seen as a future Protestant hero by the English and feted accordingly. Apparently, Charles always felt in Henry's shade to a certain extent. Henry used to like to joke that Charles I would make a good Archbishop of Canterbury. Um, But Henry died in 1612, and that left Charles as uh, the heir to the throne, and he came to the throne following the death of his father uh, in 1625. Okay, so that's a very good summary there. So if you didn't have any context, you've got a bit now. And... Historians like Lawrence Stone have argued that Charles I actually caused the English Civil War and Charles' decision to rule without Parliament has been used as evidence for that kind of argument. But why did Charles I decide to govern without Parliament? It was probably an unexpected decision on everybody's part. Um, It happened perhaps by accident. When Charles came to the throne, um, he had a political apprenticeship behind him of a few years. He was a prince who went to Parliament himself spoke in Parliament, uh, was known by MPs, 
and was seen as having been bred up in parliaments, a lover of parliament. So there was a lot of enthusiasm about what his relationship to that institution would be like when he became king. The problem happened in the first three or four years of his rule. So the crown was heavily in debt, it needed money, it was fighting wars with Spain, members of the House of Commons were desperate for those wars to be pursued. Um, There was a great fear about Roman Catholicism in England and a sense that Spain was England's natural enemy. But they also refused to stump up the money to fund those wars. So in recurrent parliaments in 1625, 1626 and 1628-9, they increasingly agitated for renewed hostilities, greater hostilities, and they bemoaned the lack of success that Charles and his favourite Buckingham were having in the war against Spain. Um, But equally, they didn't want to give up their cash until they could be sure that their grievances had been redressed. And to Charles, this was an attack on his royal dignity, an attack on his, um, his kingship. And he saw this as an act of disloyalty, an act of stupidity. And he came by 1629 to a point where Uh, He said he'd never like to speak about parliaments again. Uh, He got rid of them and for 11 years ruled without them. So then he's made this decision to govern by personal rule without parliament. How does that actually work in practice then? You know, how is England actually governed kind of during that period of personal rule for Charles? Well, very much as it was governed with parliaments. The only difference is that there isn't a parliament there to legitimise what's called supply. So that's taxation. There isn't a forum there for the political heart of the nation to get together and discuss their grievances and lobby the king and influence policy in that way. The day-to-day affairs of England carry on very much as they always had. Justices of the peace and assize judges, the courts continue to function. Constables, church wardens, they get on with their job. They're doing their job very much as they always have. But I think there are three Uh, key differences during the personal rule, three big kind of areas of uh, dispute which kind of mark it out as different. One of them is religion. So Charles had very high tastes in religion. It probably didn't help that his queen was a French Catholic, Henrietta Maria, which sowed distrust. He was always a Protestant himself, but there was a lot of mistrust about his religious policies which tended to emphasize the beautiful and the expensive and the ornate. Um, The other was finance so obviously without parliament he had to try and find ways of raising money uh, without parliamentary taxation so this involved a variety of uh, schemes and devices uh, really trying to um, get old medieval practices working again, um, take an unorthodox spin on some traditional (laughs) forms of raising money. So that was a big area of discontent. And the other one was around law and censorship. So there was a sense that during the personal rule, uh, Charles and his associates were using uh, what are known as the prerogative courts. So courts that are outside the common law system that plug directly into the king's own personal ability to condemn and to show mercy, uh, the prerogative courts, high commission and star chamber. And there's a sense among some that Charles is kind of misusing those courts as well. So three big differences. The day-to-day affairs carry on much as before. um, And in many ways, just government continues as normal. Oh, okay, so 
that's maybe a bit contradictory to the sort of things we might expect because we've had in amongst historians and maybe popular ideas this idea that Charles was a tyrant because when he was charged with treason by the High Court of Justice it was for devising and I'm quoting a wicked design to erect and uphold himself in an unlimited and tyrannical power to rule according to his will and that's in 1649 so is that a fair judgment would you say? Yeah, I'm not sure. Certainly to his enemies, Charles was a tyrant. To his enemies, this was the 11 years tyranny. Ruling without parliament was uh, tyrannous. But Charles himself had a keen sense of the constitution. Um, He certainly believed in divine right monarchy, but then so did most uh, English politicians of the day. So there was nothing really surprising about Mm -hmm. that. But there's not really a sense that he governed illegally. Uh, or unconstitutionally. Everything he did was, uh, in a very technical sense, legal and constitutional. Um, But it certainly was controversial. The issue of tyranny came up again in the 19th century. So historians then um, really went through a phase, a mood of looking back to the 17th century and seeing the squabble between Crown and Parliament as a kind of a forerunner of the long march towards English liberty. So Charles is the baddie and Parliament is um, the good guys, basically, on that narrative. So Charles becoming a tyrant, that sense pervades historical scholarship. Um, More recently, I think historians have begun to question that and to, to, to throw a different light on it. Clearly, he was a failure. So he wasn't a tyrant, but he certainly was a failure. The problem with tyranny is that that it rather obscures the real reasons why he was a failure. Uh, uh, And the real reasons why he was a failure generally are seen now as being more about his lack of political nous rather than uh, his tyrannical sensibilities. Yeah, so that's really interesting, the idea that if we just brand him as a tyrant, we kind of write off understanding actually the failings of his kingship. So then just to kind of finish up this historical section... Why did Charles's personal rule end? It was very good government in many respects. It was efficient. um, It worked. It raised lots of money. And to many people in England at the time, these were halcyon days where Mm -hmm. England was peaceful and it definitely was a major contrast to the wars that were ripping through Germany uh, in the Thirty Years' War. So in many respects, it was successful, but it was only ever going to be successful during peacetime. That was the problem. So Charles and his councillors were very effective at raising enough money to help govern England during peacetime and help bring down the national debt uh, and so on. But it couldn't cope with warfare. And when warfare sprang up in Scotland from 1637 uh, through to about 1640, the so-called Covenanters and the Bishops' Wars, they were particularly aggrieved about Charles's religious policy. Charles needed to go and face down that rebellion. He needed to raise an English army. He needed vast sums of money to do it. Uh, And the amounts that he was able to raise through those kind of non-parliamentary forms of taxation during the personal rule just were not enough for that. So the whole thing collapses when England is confronted with warfare. Okay. So then that's kind of a a bit of an insight into the history side of Charles I. So we've reached the end of the first section of the podcast. So now we're going to move on to discussing actually kind of what this has meant going forward, making it relevant to today and to today's public history. So some of the listeners, you might be thinking at this point, okay, so why is this history relevant? No one really seems to talk about Charles I all that much whether it be on school curriculums, in TV programmes or in films. But this in itself is actually problematic. So 
do you think that Charles I has kind of been forgotten in public history? Yeah, I wouldn't say forgotten altogether. There's certainly plenty of TV programmes and documentaries covering the Civil War and um, Charles's rule in that period. So there's a, a kind of a few examples that I can think of. But it becomes very difficult, I think. A lot of what happens during the personal rule and during the Civil Wars can only really be explained and understood through the prism of religion, which is the language that people at the time used to understand their property, their place in society, to understand the economy, to understand political relationships. They used the language of religion. And a large amount of what happens in the 1630s and 1640s turns on seemingly now quite arcane disputes about uh, theology and religious practice. So I think that can alienate people. It can put people off if you haven't been born into and brought up within one of various Christian churches. So I think that can be quite off-putting. It can be a reason perhaps why this isn't always taught in schools as much as you might think it would be. It's a reason why making good TV programs about it can be very difficult. Um, there are some really good examples. I think of The the Devil's Whore from uh, the 2000s, which was a fantastic kind of rip-roaring ride through radical revolutionary England. But actually watching it, um, you realise just how much of it is about religion. Yeah. Um, and actually to a modern audience, that can be quite difficult. So I think religion is perhaps one of the biggest reasons for that. But I do think it's important. It's a crucial part of our national story. Mm. This is the only time in English history, in British history, where we've judicially tried and executed a reigning monarch. And not only did we do that, we also abolished the House of Lords and abolished the Church of England and its bishops around the same time as well. So this is a momentous radical revolutionary moment in English history it's an indelible part of the national story and uh, it's a shame perhaps that it's not as widely studied and understood as as it should be yeah it is a massive part of our history and like you say it sounds like it's been limited by kind of a lack of insight into the religious discourses and the religious context of the period so would you say that Charles has received a similar treatment amongst academic historians is it valid to question whether he might have been forgotten in academia at all? No, I don't think he's been forgotten in academia. I think the civil wars and uh, the kind of revolutions of the mid-17th century lend themselves really well to scholarly study. Yeah. There are big debates that are still unresolved and unanswered, such as the origins of the civil wars, why they happened, um, the role of Charles I within that, the reasons why Parliament was victorious the reasons why Charles I was executed, the reasons why the Republican regime fell apart in 1660. These are really big, juicy intellectual <laughs> questions uh, about which historians can argue until the cows come home. So there's no end of academic interest in that. What you do see at the moment is some really good books written by historians trying to reach out to the general public and put these um, issues back to the general public. Um, Jonathan Healy's Blazing World, Anna Kay's um, Restless uh, Republic, I think, you know, are showing signs of reaching out to a broader public. Yeah, so it's trying to, I guess, bridge a potential disconnect between what's circulating in public history and the kind of questions that academics are grappling with. And, you know, often a lot of the scholarship that would have been produced about Charles I, it does get hidden behind academic paywalls. And so it's really encouraging that we're seeing, like you say, in these pop histories, which are trying to disseminate the history more widely. 
I think in opening up some of the debates to a wider audience that can obviously help boost child's profile and maybe encourage more study in school curriculums and things like that. And I know you touched on it earlier, actually, there is a potential danger in doing that. And that if we start paying more attention to the personal rule of, of Charles, we might start to see connections being drawn between his 17th century history and today's constitutional monarchy. And from the sounds of it, that's something which historians in the 19th century were doing. Do you think it's problematic to draw connections between today's political structure and Charles' personal rule? Yes, the institutions look so familiar to us. The monarchy, the lords, the commons, the Church of England, all of these institutions look and feel very familiar because they exist in the present world. But they were very different in the 17th century, of course. So it's very difficult to kind of judge them by contemporary standards. Um, I think it can only be a good thing if Charles and the Civil Wars and the Restoration and this remarkable period of history become better known and better understood. I think the danger is when you try and look back and turn it into a story of good guys and bad guys. Yeah. I think it's very difficult to do that. Parliament in this period could be equally as autocratic, um, equally as oligarchic, equally as tyrannical, mm. uh, and it behaved as such during the civil wars, equally so if not more so than Charles I was during the personal rule. Equally as intolerant over religion as well, perhaps more so even than Charles I ever was. So it's very difficult when you go back and you try and sift them into heroes and the villains of history. I don't think that makes a lot of sense to a contemporary audience. But apart from that, I think all the there's nothing to be lost and everything to be gained from knowing more about this period. So we've got a bit of direction there from John about the future of the public histories in a sense that we need to keep focusing on Charles I. There's more to come from studying him. And I guess just to finish up this episode, I want to end with the question of whether you think we should be blaming Charles for causing the English Civil War. Do you think he was to blame? And whether you think he is or he isn't, should we be playing the kind of blame game in public history? Is that something that's risky to do or safe to do? I actually think it can be safe to do. You just have to do it on the right terms. So as I say, you have to kind of set aside this sense that Charles I is bad or tyrannical and you have to simply understand that he was a failure and work from there to try and understand why he failed so many of the things about Charles's own personality we would find very good for instance so he was uh, chaste in his marriage he was loyal and devoted to Henrietta Maria he was loyal to his friends um, he had a keen sense of honor uh, he was certainly very personally brave. Um, there's lots of things to admire about Charles I, but equally there are things about him that made him ill-suited to the political world of the 1630s and 1640s. The fact that in pursuit of his higher ideals he could be duplicitous, the fact that he could say one thing to one person and then immediately go back on his word in pursuit of his goals, the fact that he found it very difficult to ever yield to a bad cause in his own words there, the fact that he lacked political empathy and understanding for okay. his opponents. He found it very difficult to get inside their heads and understand them. And it was that kind of political failure that I think caused the breach of trust between himself and his opponents that can explain so much of what happened. So yes, you can blame Charles I, okay. but you just have to do it in the right way. Okay, well, thank you very much. And I think with that, we were at the end of the episode. A massive, massive thank you to you, John, for being willing to come onto the podcast. 
And also I do just have to say, if anyone listening now has listened to the Elizabeth Woodville episode, which was a couple back, they will have heard me give a shout out to John Reeks. This is the John Reeks that taught the unit, which inspired that episode. And so from today's episode as well, as you've just heard, John knows a lot about 17th century history, something which I personally didn't know much about. And as we've been saying, is something which needs tackling and is in the process of being changed. Well, maybe one day I'll have an undergraduate unit on the reign of Charles I, but the problem is that I'd have to give up the Wars of the Roses to do it, which would be a real shame. But uh, I'd love to be able to teach this to our students here at Bristol. Well, you'll just have to play them back the episode and then that'll be the unit done. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) It's just me jumping in on the end here just to say... Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the episode. John was really brilliant to chat with and actually a bit of behind the scenes information for you. He did that entire episode without any notes, which is crazy. All of that information was in his head. So that's pretty impressive. If you want to follow along with John, I'll leave his Twitter handle in the description of this episode. As always, if you can, please leave us a rating on Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you want to follow along with the podcast, you can. Our Instagram is at History Remastered Pod. And yeah, thank you so much for listening. And I look forward to speaking to you again soon. Bye.